You, you remember when you were four and you had very strong emotions about things. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. I thank you for those who could be with us this morning. We think of those who are not able to be with us, uh, whether because of illness or ailments, pain, or uh, just, just couldn't work today. We pray that uh, they would feel a nearness of your presence through your Holy Spirit this morning as well, and, and know that they're worshiping with us, right along with us in that spirit. We thank you for your word, Lord. It is our strength. It is our life. It is our power. Everything, in this, everything else in this world is just empty. It's a, it's a dead carcass that tries to play itself as being fully alive and, and something we want. And Lord, we know that you, your Holy Spirit, your word is, is everything we could ever want or need. We thank you that it is always timeless and always true, no matter what culture, time period, society we live in, that it speaks to each and every one of us. Lord, I pray that as your word goes forth today, uh, that your seeds of truth may be buried deep within us and bear real fruit in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so similar to Christmas morning, I want to start our message time this morning with another quiz of sorts, but this time it's only one question quiz. And again, some of you are thinking, if you're going to make this a habit, you could at least have the deacons walk around and take our coffee orders during the worship time of the service. I'm not going to do that because I can see at least somebody here pulling the venti double cup no sleeve caramel macchiato with two shots of espresso, two pumps vanilla, three pumps hazelnut, soy milk instead of whole milk, whipped cream with cinnamon dusting, a scoop of vanilla powder, and a scoop of coconut shavings on top. I can already see that. I know one of you here would do that, and I could not do that to any of our wonderful deacons. So here's our question. What was invented first, the telescope or the microscope? Maybe we should have a, a royal rumble here to find out. Okay. Technically, it was the microscope, but just barely. And interestingly enough, both inventions were created in Holland. The microscope is thought to have been invented around the year 1600, and the telescope, which is in simplest terms a reversal of the microscope, was invented in 1608. That's why I said it was just barely. In the 1660s, another Dutchman made his own lenses for his microscope and was the first to coin the term cells to describe what constructed the objects he was investigating. And famously, Galileo Galilei refined the first telescopes to explore the heavens, making observations about the universe that no one had thought of before, and supporting Copernicus's earlier theory that the Earth revolved around the sun and not the other way around. With both of these inventions, one born out of the other, suddenly and seemingly overnight, brand new worlds were opened up to humanity. The world of the mind-blowingly gigantic 
and the world of what had been previously invisible to the naked eye. Atheistic scientists have used and will continue to use these discoveries to push their, in reality, nonsensical explanations of the origins of the universe. But believers in Jesus can look at each and every new discovery as another opportunity to reaffirm the biblical accounts of creation and the worldwide flood and bring praise to God. In Jesus' healing of the man blind from birth, which we started talking about last week, he not only gives this man eyesight, but what he's also doing is opening up a brand new world for him. And ultimately, a brand new world to explore and give God praise for. Last week, we introduced this setting as we began with verse 1 of chapter 9. This was the Sabbath following the Feast of Tabernacles, which we wrapped up with the end of chapter 8. Jesus and his disciples are either going to or leaving from the temple again, as it was the Sabbath, and they were still in Jerusalem. As they passed by those in the area of the temple who were there to ask for money in reliance on others' charity, they passed by a man who was blind from birth. As they passed by this man, the disciples thought of a theological problem they didn't readily have an answer for. They had been taught, as well as all Jewish people, for hundreds of years by rabbis, Pharisees, and other religious leaders that one's disability was caused by their specific grievous sin or a specific grievous sin done by their parents. But here was a man who was blind as a baby, and the theological issue in their minds was, but how could a baby sin so grievously that God would curse them with blindness? It must be his parents' fault then, right? Somebody's to blame. Not only was their incorrectly taught theology wrong, but the other problem was that they wondered aloud this question, probably within hearing distance of this man. Their questioning must have sounded insensitive and demeaning towards this particular man who had probably heard similar things his entire life and wondered the same thing himself, which was, why would God do this to me? Jesus' response to his disciples was that it was neither the man nor his parents who were the cause of his physical condition. Rather, in God's sovereignty and God's plan, he had allowed this man to have the condition he had for a powerful reason. In this case, for the very moment that Jesus would pass by him. In that way, all those years of suffering had led to God displaying his works in his life when he would eventually have an encounter with Jesus. And we talked last week that any physical or mental limitations or conditions that we have are not because we're a mistake or that God made a mistake. None of them are to be a source of belittlement, negativity, or inferiority. Instead, it's not in spite of our physical or mental conditions that God is glorified. It's because of our physical or mental conditions that God is glorified. He created us. He allowed certain conditions in our lives and bodies according to his plan for his purposes, plan, and mission. 
He has a powerful purpose and a powerful plan specifically for you to display His works, His might, His power, and His salvation through Jesus through how He's planned you in His kingdom. And because of that, He will receive all the glory from it. Last week, we also talked about how there will be a day when Jesus will come back and give all of us perfected and glorified bodies, free from limitation, disability, pain, brokenness, illness, and death. Bodies fit to spend an eternity with him. And in the meantime, no matter who we are or what we struggle with, God has work for all of us to do. Building his kingdom in whatever ways he sees fit and has gifted us to do. And last week we talked about how Jesus will back up the words he's been saying throughout this Feast of Tabernacles. As all of Jerusalem is lit up with torches and giant menorahs on display in the temple complex. That he is the light of the world by publicly showing it in an individual's life. Jesus is not only the light of the world, but he is about to show how he is the light in each of our individual lives. In this case, by literally and physically bringing the light of eyesight to the darkness of, this, of the blindness this man has only ever known. In and through this whole action of Jesus healing this man and giving him eyesight for the very first time, as with everything else Jesus says and does, as pointed out by one biblical scholar, there's a whole lot of symbolism wrapped up in this experience. Instead of Jesus simply healing someone else, we're going to see the teaching about himself in everything Jesus says and does in this experience that reveals more of who he is. So with all of that review and setting up for our passage this morning, let's jump into where we left off last week. So if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 9. We're going to be picking up in verse 6. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 9. It's in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You can ask a neighbor and look it up in the table of contents. doesn't matter. You can just find it uh, so we can uh, all see this together. Or you can look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. John chapter 9, verse 6, we read, When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. This is not the first time we see Jesus heal a blind man, nor is it the first time we see Jesus use spit in his act of healing someone. About a year before this, while in Capernaum of the province of Galilee, Jesus healed two blind men. Then about six months later, shortly after the third Passover of his ministry, in the Decapolis, Jesus healed a man who couldn't hear or speak by sticking his fingers in the man's ears and then spitting on his hand and touching the man's tongue. And shortly after that, in Bethsaida, Jesus healed another man by spitting directly on his eyes and then placing his hands over them. But here in John 9, we have the first time in Scripture that Jesus spits on the ground and makes mud out of the dust 
and his spit. A lot of us have heard this story before, perhaps in Sunday school or kids' church or VBS. We know that Jesus had even just spoken a word and healed a boy on the edge of death from 20 miles away, and it worked. So Jesus didn't need the dirt and his spit to heal this man, but along with everything else Jesus said and did, he was teaching a truth through the symbolism of what he used here. Firstly, Jesus took some dust or dirt from where he was standing to symbolize the same dust or dirt that mankind was first created out of. God's word also tells us that we were initially created out of the dust of the earth. And when we die, even though our souls, the souls of the followers of Jesus, go to be with him, our physical bodies return to the dust of the earth until Jesus comes back for them. Firstly, Jesus reminded both this man and the onlooking people of who they owed their very existence in the first place to. And that any miraculous healing of their physical bodies originating from God and the dirt he had already created could therefore only come from him. Secondly, Jesus was directing the man and the people to see that as the Apostle John began his gospel with in chapter 1, specifically, humankind's creation came through him as the word of God. The Son of God. Jesus, as the Son of God, was ultimately the one through whom humankind was created. And it's through Jesus, as the Son of God, that any healing of the human body can come through. We can pray for wisdom for doctors. We can pray for steady hands for surgeons. We can thank God for the medical knowledge that we have now. But it's always ultimately from God the Father and through God the Son that any healing, recovery, and especially miraculous healing comes from. This connection to Jesus' deity as God and his role in the creation and healing of humanity flows directly into the next symbolism we see here. Jesus could have just told the man to close his eyes and blown the dust directly into his face and come away with the symbolic meaning we just talked about. But Jesus takes it one step further and makes a kind of clay by combining the dust with his own spit. Jesus could have even used a little bit of water that he could have had with him in a canteen to make the clay. But he makes a point of using his own spit to make the clay. Why? Because every ingredient and every step of making this clay began and ended with him. Again, it was through Jesus as the Son of God that the dust itself came into being. And it was through Jesus as the Son of God that humanity itself came into being. That occurred thousands of years before that. Now, it's through Jesus as the, as the Son of God, combining the spit coming from his own physical body, that that dust is then made into clay. As Jesus himself says, the same man recording this event in this book and physically present there that day, about 60 years later, when the same Apostle John records the book of Revelation, in the very last chapter of that book, 
And therefore, the very last chapter of God's word to us, Jesus himself says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to reward each one as his work deserves. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. For those of you who don't know, the first letter of the ancient Greek alphabet was alpha, and we still see this being used in in terms like alpha male, etc. today. And omega was the last letter of the ancient Greek alphabet. Jesus expanded on this understanding with the first and the last and the beginning and the end. Jesus made this clay out of the dust of the earth of which he was the creator, thereby symbolizing his deity. And Jesus made this clay out of his spit, therefore symbolizing his physical body as a human. In every way, the instrument of this blind man's healing represented Jesus and his healing as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Beyond the symbolism of the origin of the clay, there is symbolism in the understanding of the clay itself, as pointed out by one biblical scholar. In the Old Testament prophetic book of Isaiah, we see several references to humanity being clay and God being the potter of that clay. One specific instance of this is Isaiah 64, 8. But now, Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. And all of us are the work of your hand. In his explanation of God's election of certain people to pour out his grace on to enable them to put their faith in Jesus for salvation, and God's election of others to not have grace on, the Apostle Paul uses these references in Isaiah to teach, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? On the contrary, who are you, you foolish person, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter not have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one object for honorable use and another for common use? Jesus, the first in the last, the beginning, and the end. In both the Old and New Testaments, we see this truth. God is the potter, and we are but the clay. He chooses to shape us into what he wants. He chooses to have grace on us or not. He chooses what will happen to us in this life. The overarching hard truth for us to swallow as humans is that God is the potter and we are the clay to be shaped for whatever purposes he deems best. One of the greatest struggles we have as humans is to just remember that we are the clay and to be okay with what God does with us as the potter. 
And here in this morning's passage, what is Jesus again connecting to himself with the making of this clay and applying it to the man's eyes? That he is the one and the same as the potter described in the Jewish and Old Testament book of Isaiah. That he is equal to God the Father in his being and his healing power. The one that his fellow Jewish onlookers claim to worship as God is standing before them putting a mud mixture on this blind man's eyes. Jesus is also declaring to the man that he has the same ability and right that only belongs to God as also God himself to heal him. So Jesus smears this clay slash mud on this man's eyes and then tells him to do something. Verse 7. And said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. The pool of Siloam, John says here, means sent. But there is so much more significance to this pool and then how Jesus connects it to himself in the healing of this man. Nothing Jesus does is by accident or off the cuff, but always means something. This is a photo of what archaeologists believe to be the Pool of Siloam, just discovered in 2004. It wasn't that long ago. You can see the steps on one side that lead down into this pool. The pool is, starts about, whoop, I'm going the wrong way here. You can, the pool starts about here. It's covered under this right here. You can see how big this thing was, too. According to one biblical scholar, the Pool of Siloam has great significance both to the Jewish people in Jesus' day and to this specific healing by Jesus. In 2 Kings, we find out that King Hezekiah, a relatively good king over the southern kingdom of Judah, who ruled over Judah about 700 years before Jesus was born, built a way for the city of Jerusalem to have a supply of clean water within the city walls, even if the city was besieged. There was a natural spring called the Spring of Gihon, about a third of a mile away from the city. Hezekiah commissioned that a tunnel be hewn through about 2,000 feet of solid rock from that spring to feed a pool close to Solomon's great temple, which he called the Pool of Siloam. When the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, they also destroyed the Pool of Siloam around 600 B.C. But when Nehemiah was permitted to go and help out the rebuilding of Jerusalem following the Babylonian exile 70 years later, part of his job description was to rebuild the Pool of Siloam as well. When Herod the Great of Christmas fame, was made a puppet king by Rome in 37 BC and started his massive building projects, most notably expanding the temple that had been rebuilt after the Babylonian exile. He also expanded the Pool of Siloam. It's after Herod's expansion of the Pool of Siloam that those who were poor or sick started bathing in the pool, and here's where things get cool. So wake back up if you nodded off for a second there. According to several rabbinic teachings and traditions, the Pool of Siloam becomes known as the Messiah's Pool. 
In addition, what important festival did we just wrap up, which holds much significance in connection with the Messianic kingdom and end times events, the Feast of Tabernacles. You might be sick of us talking about this feast for so long, but we're not done yet. Each morning for the first seven days of that eight-day celebration, a priest would take a golden cup and go down to the pool of Siloam, dipping it into the pool and bringing it back to the altar at the temple. While that priest would pour the cup of water from the pool of Siloam on one side of the altar, another priest would pour a cup of wine on the other side of the altar. Why did they do this? The symbolism of this ritual was in connection with both God's provision for his people during the 40 years of wilderness wanderings, but it was also in connection with the coming messianic kingdom that they anticipated, especially with the water being taken from the Messiah's pool. One biblical scholar believes that it was meant to illustrate Isaiah 12.3, a verse in connection with the Messiah and Israel's realization of complete dependence on God. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Just as John notes that the pool of Siloam also means sent, the Messiah, and whom not just the Jewish people, but the entire world would experience salvation, sent by God the Father, sends this man with mud on his eyes to this pool called Sent to experience physical salvation from blindness and later on to experience full salvation from spiritual blindness. Did you ever think there was so much symbolism and meaning to this famous story of Jesus spitting into some dirt and smearing it on this blind dude's eyes? God's word is certainly a location of digging your shovel in and taking out buried treasure after buried treasure, isn't it? Getting back to our account, the man first had to go to the pool. He had to have enough faith to be led through the streets of Jerusalem from the temple area to the pool of Siloam and then have enough faith to take some water and wash his eyes off with it. Verse 7 tells us he did. He was miraculous, miraculously healed and he could finally see. We spent so much time on the symbolism and meaning and power of everything that happened in these simple actions that we'll have to wait to take a look at the fallout from all of this next week. Let's rewind a little bit. This man was born blind, and there was zero hope in a physical and human understanding of him having either physical or spiritual healing. He had suffered much in his life especially in this time and culture he lived. And all of that led up to the very moment that Jesus passed by. It was at that moment that Jesus and the faith this man had to at least listen to him to wash off his eyes that God displayed his work of healing through Jesus. He finally experienced salvation from the physical darkness he had spent his entire life in. And soon, he would finally experience salvation from the spiritual darkness he had spent his entire life in. You might be here today or watching online later, and you've spent your entire life 
in spiritual darkness. You've never come to the point in your life where you've repented of your sins and accepted that sinless Jesus paid the debt for your sin that is death and ultimate, ultimate death or hell on your behalf and recognized him as the king over the rest of your life. Everything in your life, all the suffering, all the emptiness, all the looking for hope in all the wrong places, all the trying to be good enough on your own or doing enough rituals or praying enough prayers, all the confusion, all the heartache, all the trauma from your past, all the physical and emotional wounds, all the hopelessness has all led to this moment when Jesus is holding out his hand to you and offering his forgiveness, his salvation, his redemption of everything in your life, and his healing of your soul. Take his hand today, turn from your sin, ask him to forgive you based on his death and resurrection for you, and live for him as king. God's word tells us that he is the God of redemption. He is the God of hope. He is the God of salvation. He is the God of healing. Spiritual, physical, emotional, and psychological. Your pain, whatever it is, is not too deep, too buried, or too beyond hope for Jesus to heal you and get you start walking down the road to recover from it. Your addiction, whatever it is, is not too strong, too powerful, or too deeply embedded for Jesus to free you from it. Your past trauma, your past abuse, your past psychological torment is not too dark, embarrassing, or shameful for Jesus to redeem you from it. In short, Jesus is the only hope for any of us, no matter what we need to be healed from. It doesn't matter what it is. Jesus can and will heal you from it. He is the ultimate healer and restorer. It may take some time, but through the indwelling movement and transformation of the Holy Spirit, you will be made whole again. Jesus crushed the power of Satan and the kingdom of darkness when he breathed his last on the cross that Good Friday 2,000 years ago. And someday Jesus will fully take all of our wounds, abuse, trauma, pain, torment, sicknesses, ailments, and sources of death. One day soon, Jesus is coming for his church. And all the pain, weakness and struggles we continue to deal with in this broken, sinful, and fallen world, even after our salvation experience with Jesus, will all lead up to that moment. We will finally all be given those perfected and glorified bodies, those perfected and glorified minds and hearts, and we'll finally be able to see our Savior and King face to face. All those sources of tears and screams of pain will instantly fade away when we look on his wonderful face, as the old hymn says. In the meantime, Jesus has sent us the comforter, the helper, the counselor, the breath of God, the Holy Spirit, to bring Jesus' healing to us in the here and now. As we are the clay, we wait on his timing and his decisions regarding our healing. But we have the faith to know that he can and will do it the way he deems best. At the same time, we know that God is also our good and perfect father 
The one we can cry out to in our darkest and most hopeless of nights as our heavenly dad. And we know that he hears us. And as the Apostle Peter writes, he cares about everything we're going through. Look to Jesus as your only source of healing. Don't look for it anywhere else or anyone else or anything the world loves to shout at us with and shove in our faces. Look to Jesus and he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never give up on you. Look to Jesus and he will always come after you and give you the healing you need. Jesus is your creator, he is your sustainer, and he is your only healer. Remind your soul of these words of God over your life, prophesying about Jesus the Messiah's mission. However, it was our sicknesses that he himself bore, and our pains that he carried, yet... We ourselves assume that he had been afflicted, struck down by God, and humiliated. But he was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him. Say this with me. And by his wounds we are healed. Amen. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this powerful experience in your word and what it still tells us and teaches us and shouts at us today. That you are still the same God. You are still the same healer. You are still the same creator and sustainer and life giver. You are still the one we can cry out to in our darkest of nights and most hopeless of times. And it is only through you that we can and will have healing from all the trauma, all the illness, all the uh, uh, psychological abuse, all the physical abuse, all the pain, all the torment we've experienced. Any healing can only come from you. We thank you for giving us the comforter, the helper, the breath of God to start working this in us right now. And we know that you're coming back for us one day and we'll fully pour out this healing on us at that point. And everything we've been through, all the suffering, all the fear, all the anxiety, all the pain, will lead up to that very moment when the trumpet blast of God will burst out of heaven and you will come back and rise us up to be with you forever. And as the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, let us all encourage each other with these words. I pray all these things in the saving name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please stand.